We got an amazing topic for you nursing students out there. This is alterations in elimination. We're going to be focusing on urinary incontinence. I'm not sure if I talked about this live before, but we have that topic plus five challenging NCLEX questions after our quick review. This is how we get it in. I also will be going inside of your NCLEX virtual trainer that you guys have to talk a little bit more about it. And I will be playing a video from the training center. So hold on to your horses. We got a lot to do today. And this is how we get down on Wednesdays. I'm so happy to see you. You're checking in. You're staying consistent with your goals. That is what this journey is all about. Doesn't take long to get your NCLEX passed but you gotta stay consistent during the process. So welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Regina and I am the number one NCLEX instructor. We're getting right into it, right into it right now. So urinary elimination, um, this is going to be the process of emptying your bladder. And typically for us all, uh, urination is a private process. However, because your client may need physiological or even psychological assistance, nurses have to be, um, they have to be competent and they have to be available to help a client with elimination needs. And so when we talk about the process of emptying urine for the, from the urinary bladder, the basic function is removal of waste. So if you have any kind of issues where you're not removing waste, you can expect toxicity signs, sepsis signs in your patient. An anatomy overview, the, the normal urination process happens when urine is produced by the kidneys, okay? And then the urine from the kidneys goes down through the ureters. We have two ureters, and the two ureters go to one bladder, okay? And the bladder, remember in A&P, anatomy and physiology, the Bladder is a smooth muscle, and so it can expand to hold more urine. About 500 milliliters for women, and the male bladder typically tends to be a lot bigger, um, 700 milliliters of urine in the man. People will begin, or let me ask you this, when will people begin to feel an urge to urinate? What do you guys think? When will people begin to feel the need to urinate? How, how much urine will cause that urge in the bladder? Does anybody know? It's all right. We're getting it in. About 250 milliliters of urine, your patient will start to say, hey, I have to go to the bathroom. All right. And I'm talking about your adult patient. Typical. Okay. Um, and so what happens then, the bladder reaches its capacity. Um, and so the um, urethral sphincters relax. And it lets the bladder pass through. And then so normal urine flows from the urethra and out of the body. Very good. Most of you guys got this. Hey, tag your nursing buddy. Tag your nursing buddy. Let them know it's time to study. Okay. So we're, we're specifically talking about urinary incontinence, urinary. Um, and so when there is an alteration to the normal elimination this is considered an issue that we have to treat, okay? Now, urinary incontinence is where you cannot control your bladder. You have a loss of um, bowel control typically, and then 
involuntary leakage of urine. I'm sorry, that should say loss of bladder control. Loss of bladder control and involuntary leakage of urine. And though this may be temporary or it may be permanent, may be continuous, may be intermittent. We know that urinary incontinence is an issue for women more so than men. And so if you're in the stores, I know you see there's a whole section of um, incontinence underwear for women. They're on the TV. Rarely do we see one with a man as the head of the commercial. It's always like discreet, um, you know, adult diapers for women. That's what it usually is. So we know that this issue affects women more than men, and it absolutely may interfere with a person's daily life, how much they like to travel and where they go out. So I wanna talk about the four types of urinary incontinence. We're having stress, urge, overflow, or functional incontinence. All right, so let's just start with stress incontinence. And when we are talking about stress incontinence, this is actually um, usually caused by a weak pelvic floor. And so physical activities that put stress on the bladder causes the bladder to leak, causes the bladder to leak. Secondly, uh, and, and let me let me give some examples before I go through it. When we talk about stress incontinence, so that could be things like exercising, okay, sneezing, sneezing, right, coughing, and all these things put like a tiny bit of stress on the bladder, and it just goes because it can't have the, the pelvic floor is weak. All right, so um, sneezing, coughing, laughing exercising, running. Yes, sneezing. If you never heard of it before, um, a lot of older women will say when they sneeze, urine leaks. Okay. Um, and so this is an example of stress incontinence. This is an example of stress incontinence. Now, urge incontinence is this, where you have the, uh, a, you have an intense feeling, right? To go a certain intense urge to urinate. This is also because of a loss of bladder control. Typically, you see this in, in patients with urinary tract infections and the elderly, okay, as well. Overflow incontinence kind of sounds like what it is, where your bladder is so full, it's not emptying completely. And so you have a dribbling or a leaking of urine. And then the final incontinence is not one that I hear or I read a lot about, but it is, it is true. It is a functional incontinence. And so functional incontinence, we have to be able to assess as nurses if the patient has a physical or mental barrier that is preventing them from uh, making it to the bathroom on time. Okay, a physical or mental. Now, I'm going to ask you this. Which age group do we typically see this last, this last bit of incontinence with? The functional incontinence. What do you think? Oh, as a mother, I can say functional incontinence is a real thing. Which age group usually struggles with functional incontinence? Are transitioning early preschool toddlers okay our children pediatrics because remember we're talking about a physical 
or a mental ability that prevents them, yeah, kids, that prevents them from getting to the bathroom on time. So if you have, you know, your three-year-old and you put them on pants, even four-year-olds, even my son, he's five. If I put him on pants with buttons on him and he can't undo the buttons, he probably more than likely will have an accident if he can't get to the bathroom on time, right? And so kids sometimes struggle with getting there on time. They know they have to get there. They have the desire to hold it. They have the ability, but it just takes them way too long. It can't just get there. Ah, ah, ah. So kids, toddlers, yes, functional incontinence. So remember that for your NCLEX exam. Okay. Um, I'm going to move on to the next topic of this, which is risk factors. We're talking about urinary incontinence here. So gender, of course, women, okay, um, being the higher percentage, age of the client. Sometimes if they're, the child is young or if the child is um, aged, they will have issues. Being overweight is a risk factor for incontinence because so many other things, like you're putting stress on your body, um, you may have some mobility issues, you can't get there, weak muscles if you're not exercising, smoking as well as a family history. So what is going to be the cause of um, a pathological breakdown of what may cause this type of condition? Okay. So our causes are Remember, with incontinence, the bladder muscles are becoming weaker for whatever reason, whether it's a pathological issue or a time factor, the bladder cannot hold the urine. And so in aging, you do see that. Also in pregnancy, in childbirth, as the growing fetus may cause um, stress incontinence. That's what we're going to typically see in pregnancy the stress incontinence. And also, if a woman has had a vaginal delivery, what is that going to do to the, uh, the, the pelvic floor muscles, all right, that are needed for bladder control? I have here enlarged prostate um, and prostate cancer. You guys have put that in the comments already. I saw bladder cancers as well. Um, we have urinary tract infections, UTIs, they may uh, irritate the bladder, right? That's how UTIs are. They irritate, they cause inflammation. And so you have a strong urge to urinate, may cause some urge incontinence. Prostitis, cystitis, um, constipation as well. Medications, the side effects of some medications like your blood pressure, pressure medications or your muscle relaxants or your sedatives are also going to contribute to some urinary incontinence. And then guess what? Our diet, things that we are consuming can affect our body. We're never going to put something in our body um, that is not going to have some sort of effect or outcome on it. So too much alcohol, caffeine, and even large doses of vitamin C can cause your patient to have this problem. So how do we treat it? What are we gonna be doing? Well, the treatment is going to depend on the client as always. So bladder training, very popular, especially if you're talking about patients who have um, multiple sclerosis, patients who have some sort of paralysis, bladder training is a great recommendation. Read about it, 
okay? Um, also, we have behavioral therapies as well. And so behavioral therapies, you may think about a patient who, um, you may think it's a psych thing, like a behavioral therapy, but it's really not when we talk about this. Um, we're talking about managing the fluids, okay? So think about, think about children in this way for incontinence, right? Bedwetting, urge incontinence. So we know we don't give fluids after a certain hour, right? Or we limit the fluid amount that a patient gets, right? So we're doing some behavioral therapy. Um, also scheduling bathroom breaks. So if you have a, a, a toddler, you know, you take them to the bathroom before you leave the house for a car ride, or you make them go to the bathroom every two hours. Okay. So that is what is meant by behavioral therapies in this situation. It's not like counseling or anything like that. Condition management, um, we are going to treat or manage the health condition that causes the incontinence, medications, um, medications, we have to see what that medication is, if it's a muscle relaxant. Also, there are some medications for overactive bladder. Catheter placement. Catheters are usually not a first recommendation for urinary incontinence. Tell me why that is. Why are catheters not recommended as a first treatment? Although they can be like, right, we can put um, a, a condom catheter on a male client who is incontinent in the hospital uh, because we don't want our patients to have impaired skin integrity right? We don't want them to be wet. We don't want their skin to break down. But I see the answer on the screen. Yeah. So we're not recommending catheterization of a patient because it is what? It's invasive. And even if we are straight cathing a patient, just in and out, not even leaving it in, every time we insert into the patient, we are putting that patient um, for risk of infection because what is the bladder? Okay. We know the bladder may be weak. We know it's full of urine, but there's one thing that the bladder is that we don't want to compromise. It's just like the other organs in our body, the other structures in our body. I'm looking for a word and it starts with an S. What is the bladder that going in and out of it is never a good thing? Somebody tell me, yes, you guys got it. You guys know what it is? It is sterile 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 yes so the bladder is sterile okay and so because the bladder is sterile inside of your blood vessels your heart your lungs your liver there is no presence of disease or infection in those things right normally so anytime you introduce yourself your gloves your kit right into a body cavity you are causing it not to be sterile, okay? And that's a big deal. That is a big deal. So we don't usually recommend urinary catheterization for that reason. Weight loss. Weight loss is uh, considered a treatment because it relieves pressure on the bladder, absorbent undergarments, uh, pads, things like that can help you to contain a small amount of urine leakage, but not a lot. And then reducing bathroom barriers, getting to the getting the patient to the bathroom as quickly as possible. So our nursing management, we are going to do the daytime intake of fluids, 
not so much at night, limiting fluid intake in the late evening or bedtime, adding more fiber to the diet, because with fiber to the diet, why? tell me this, I'm not telling you guys everything today. I'm giving you generals. I want you to give me the rationale behind it. Why is it important to add more fiber to the diet? What does that have to do with urinary incontinence? Why is that important? Why do I care about how much um, fiber my patient is having in their diet? Put it on the screen. Let me see. Let's say a few guys. We are, okay, constipation. Yes, 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 yes. And so the idea... Yeah. So the idea with constipation is that typically if we can reduce a patient from being constipated and they're using the bathroom, they're moving their bowels, they're having bowel movements, normally what comes along with that? Urine. So usually bowel and bladder go together, right? So normally it's weird if you have a baby. Oh, I don't want to use that word. It is abnormal if you have a child and they're pooping, but there's no pee coming out, right? So you have to ask the child, do you poop? Do you pee? Because if you don't pee with your poop, then you may have some sort of kidney issue or vice versa. If you have a child and they're putting out urine, but they're not constipated, I mean, they're, they're not putting out, um, they're not moving their bowels, particularly in infants, they could have a bowel obstruction. So we want to look for those things together, right? Um, so that more fiber to the diet, adults limiting our caffeine, limiting our alcohol intake, getting the client up, having them walk around, proper hand washing. Proper hand washing is important because we want to limit the risk for infections with our patients. Bowel and bladder go together, yeah. And teaching our patient Kegel exercises. Somebody put this in the comments before. Kegel ex exercises can be performed by women and men because you're strengthening the pelvic floor muscles. Proper hygiene is a must. These patients are at risk for a lot of things uh, infection-wise. The, the perineal area, it needs to be clean. It needs to be kept dry. If you're leaking urine, uh, or if you're having mobility issues where you're not able to clean yourself, you will have potential for infections. So being dry, very, very important. Skin breakdown is a real thing. It doesn't take long for it to happen. For clients with an indwelling catheter, the catheter has to be inspected and you need to do that more often than not. Also remember with catheters, doing catheter care, we are looking for um, the insertion side, making sure we're not seeing any kind of um, pus, making sure there's no kinks in that catheter, making sure that that bladder bag is below the waist level at all times. These are things that are needed. Okay, so we did a quick overview, about 20 minutes on urinary elimination, particularly incontinence. So here are my NCLEX questions for you. I'm looking for you guys to get at least three out of these five questions correctly, okay? Here's the first one. Prisha, a middle-aged woman, refrained from attending social gatherings because she feels embarrassed whenever she experiences urinary incontinence when dancing and laughing. She is experiencing, number one, is it stress incontinence? Two, 
urge incontinence, three, overflow incontinence, or four, functional incontinence. What sayeth Remar nurses on this Wednesday evening? Or whenever you watch the replay, the question will be relevant to you. I see everybody is on one accord. I'm happy to report. We all know it is number one. Love that we did the review and we are building our confidence with content. So stress incontinence again occurs when certain physical activities such as dancing, laughing, sneezing, exercising, running, whatever, puts pressure to the bladder causing urine to leak. Moving on, moving on, we have uh, number two, which of these client statements most likely indicate the client is experiencing functional incontinence? Here we go. Number one, I have to stay a few seconds longer in the toilet seat just to make sure I've completely urinated. Two. I always feel like peeing, but when I do, only a few drops come out. Three, I wet my pants because I always miss the bathroom due to my poor eyesight. Four, I make sure to wear diapers whenever I travel long distances. Okay, we are talking about functional incontinence. We looked at four definitions tonight and which patient statement is describing a functional incontinence. Hey, I'm so glad to see my regulars here. There are people that study with me every Wednesday. And when I see you guys on, it just warms my heart. Thank you for studying tonight. The correct answer is absolutely going to be number three, okay? This happens when a physical or mental barrier, functional incontinence occurs when physical barriers, this patient said, my poor eyesight, prevent the person from reaching the bathroom just in time for urination. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Next is question number three says this. How many are two for two? Question number three, the nurse is caring for a stroke client with an indwelling catheter. Which of the following nursing actions help prevent infections in the client with alterations in urination? Number one, perform range of motion exercises right after a warm bath. Two, cleanse the perineal area, pat dry, and apply topical zinc oxide. Three, obtain routine urinalysis and urine culture and sensitivity. Or four, wear sterile gloves when draining urine from the bag. Oh, okay. What sayeth you guys about this one here? Mm-mm-mm-mm. I'm, hey, I'm happy. Well, well, I see between two and three. We're talking about which of the following nursing actions help prevent infections, which is going to be best to prevent infections in our client with um, alterations in urination, basically. Okay, that answer is going to be clearly, for this sake, number two. 
okay? Because a clean environment is going to be the best to prevent infections. So proper perineal care for the client with the indwelling catheter. So when the skin is cleansed, it's kept dry, and the zinc oxide, does anybody know, can anybody give me um, an example of zinc oxide, a topical barrier cream that you can uh, apply over the, you can get it over the counter, okay? Um, zinc oxide. I know it may, it may sound a lot powerful than what it is, but what are some examples of zinc oxide that you can get over the counter? Like literally if I wanted to go buy it today, I could probably buy it. And I may even have some laying around my house. Yes. Yes. Desitin. I had to put Desitin on my two-year-old. Well, she'll be, she'll be two next week. Shiloh. I had to put Desitin on Shiloh um, just a couple days ago. And that's, that's an example of zinc oxide. There's something else. I can't think of what it is. Butt paste. Yes. These are examples of zinc oxide. So I didn't want you guys to think zinc oxide was for the actual catheter. It's topical over the skin. Okay. Um, is A&D zinc oxide? I'm not sure. Can somebody, somebody look it up? A&D ointment. Is that zinc oxide? Definitely no desitin. Definitely no Okay, you guys are naming some stuff I never heard of before. I like it though. That's that's what we're talking about. So I wanted to um, just go over that again. What that barrier cream will look like. All right. Oh no. So A and D is not zinc oxide. Thank you guys. I, I was questioning myself, thinking about it. Question number four is this: The nurse understands that normal and healthy elderly clients may still experience urinary incontinence due to which of the following reasons? Here we go. The nurse understands that normal and healthy elderly clients may still experience urinary incontinence due to which of the following reasons? Number one, the urinary tract in older adults loses its sterility over time. Two, self-care deficits resulting from loss of gross motor skills. Three, the bladder's capacity to store urine decreases with age. Four, the older client's renal system lose healthy cells. Why did I say it like that? Cells, not sales, cells. Correct answer on the screen. You guys got it very quickly, this one. It is number three. As a person gets older, the muscles supporting the bladder become weaker, resulting in the bladder's capacity to store urine, um, to store urine to decrease. All right. Hence the incontinence. So the bladder cannot store urine because it is weaker in the same way. So it releases the urine that it usually would hold. Okay. Final question. And then we'll go into the VT and study some more tonight together. Question number five is this, the nurse conducts a health teaching on the nutrition of a client with urinary incontinence. Which of the following statements by the client indicates an understanding of the teaching? So again, let me read the question again. So the nurse conducts a health teaching on the nutrition of a client with urinary incontinence. Which of the following statements by the client indicates understanding of the teaching? So we're looking for the right answer here. 
Number one, I'll make sure to intake lots of fluid with very light meals only. Two, I will take lots of vitamin C to prevent changes in my urine. Three, I will avoid fiber-rich foods to prevent my stools from getting bulky. And four, I will cut back on caffeinated drinks. Okay. What is going to be a proper, a proper understanding of how to change the diet if you are struggling from urinary incontinence? Hey, you guys are on fire tonight. Yes. You guys are on fire tonight. I love it. Perfect. Correct answer was indeed number four. Number four, I will cut back on caffeinated drinks. Alcohol and caffeinated drinks have diuretic effects, which stimulate the bladder and the production of urine. These type of drinks may also cause temporary loss of bladder control. Yes. Yes. Amazing. So right now we're going to go into my full NCLEX review, the NCLEX virtual trainer. I'm going to take you inside and we're just going to pick a video uh, tonight that we're going to watch from the VT. If you've never experienced it before, it is the best NCLEX review I've ever created. I've created some NCLEX reviews in the past, but this one is the best. So if you have your VT workbook, you can get it out and you can fill out the pages that we're going to go over tonight. I don't even know what we're going to go over, but let's go inside of it. So this is your virtual trainer, okay, for NCLEX. You can access it 24-7. If you get into your training center, all right, if you get into your training center, we can go, let's go into the RN tonight. And let's do some lecturing. What do we have here? Um, infant heart defects. What should we do? Basic care and comfort, orthopedics. What do y'all want to hear tonight? These are the choices. We can do expected changes in aging. We can do diets. We could do basic care and comfort, orthopedics, antibiotics, intravenous therapy, TPN, substance abuse. <laughs> there's there's a, there's a a full NCLEX review here. Okay, I see two for basic care and comfort. Um, diabetes insipidus, SIADH. I like to, we can do herbal management, disaster management, blood gas interpretation, CHF. Um, what else did we have that I already did? I'm trying to stick to the stuff I've already done so that you can do it with me. I'm in my virtual trainer. Isolation precautions. Y'all want to do that? Mental health. Let's see. Um, so no, I didn't do, I haven't done, have I done mental health already? Oh, psychological concepts. Y'all want to do that one? Uh, black ass interpretations. Let me see. Let me see. Okay. Um, it, and this is, this is an example of like, you're like, oh, I need to study these things. Get in the virtual trainer, get in the virtual trainer so you can get over this stuff. Um, basic care and comfort is big. Uh, mental health, mental health. Ah, I don't know what to pick you guys. All right. All right, maybe we'll do one tonight and then I'll come back. Or maybe I'll just run two to see how many people are on still. I see a lot for isolation precautions. But I see some for mental health too. Let me see how long this mental health video is. Let me check. 
All right, because again, it's a lot. I'm giving you time. If you have your note, if you have your BT workbook, get it out. If you don't have it, go get a notebook. Let me see how long this um, mental health, psychological concepts. If it's a little longer, I'm, I probably might not do it. Let me see. Oh, right here. Okay, it's 17 minutes. We running this one? Is this the one y'all want or is there another? Mental health. All right, it's mental health time. Let's see my mental health presentation in the virtual trainer. Um, and let me know if y'all can hear this. We are going to get into some psychological concepts for your NCLEX. I'm going to make this as painless as possible. We got to talk about the conditions and also the medications that are most important for the exam. I want to compare two different illnesses that sometimes get confused, even with experienced nurses. We're going to look at the difference between delirium and dementia. Let's start with delirium. Delirium is an acute mental change that is reversible with treatment. This is a major point to realize. Now, there are many causes of delirium, but I have the acronym side here. The S stands for substance abuse. The I stands for infection. Usually a urinary tract infection is very common in the elderly. D stands for drug abuse, and E stands for electrolyte imbalance. Sometimes when our electrolytes are out of sorts or irregular, it can cause us to have some mental confusion. Now, on an assessment note, clients who are delirious will also have a decreased level of consciousness. Here is a memory impairment note. The delirious client will have a decreased short-term memory, which also allows it to be confused with other disease processes. The treatment for delirium is to actually find out what's causing it and then treat that. Because once you treat the cause, the delirium will go away. And again, the research shows that even very experienced nurses confuse delirium with the next condition that we're going to talk about, which is dementia, because both are seen in the elderly. But when we think about dementia, dementia is a chronic progressive mental change that has no cure. This disease also affects personality, judgment, and behavior. The most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Okay, let's critically think Remar nurses. Is Alzheimer's disease considered a mental illness? Would you say yes or no? The correct answer is no. Even though some personality changes occur, it is not considered a mental illness. I want you to know the A's of Alzheimer's disease. You can also find these in your Quick Facts for NCLEX book. The first A is agnosia. Agnosia is an inability to use an object correctly. So this is where you may have your client 
using their toothbrush to brush their hair, right? The next A is Alexia. It's an inability to read. Also, there is aphasia, which is an inability to communicate. And then there is apraxia, which means that this patient will have movement complications. You know, I always get emails from students to say, hey, Regina, can you tell me what are the signs of early Alzheimer's, middle, late? I need to know them for NCLEX. So I'm going to give you guys a quick rundown of what they are. So for mild or early Alzheimer's, the signs are forgetfulness. Also, confabulation. Confabulation is basically fake memories. The patient cannot remember what actually happened, so they make up a story so they can tell how they filled in that period of time. Another early sign of Alzheimer's is a decreased personal hygiene. For NCLEX, the middle or moderate signs are all of the A's. If a patient is experiencing any of the A's, consider it a middle sign of Alzheimer's. And then the severe or late signs are sleep deprivation, incontinence of bowel and bladder, the patient has immunocompromised symptoms because they're not taking care of themselves. They're unable to, they're not eating properly. They're dehydrated. And also you're gonna have further decline into the cognitive and psychomotor coordinations. The treatment for Alzheimer's disease is safety and reorientation. These should be provided by the nurse. You should let the client know if they're confused, where they are, what time of day it is. These things will help. Now, when reorientation is not appropriate, then redirection is the next action. So I want you guys to know about reorientation and redirection. Reorientation is telling the patient the correct time of day, the correct place, the correct situation. If a patient has Alzheimer's disease or dementia and they cannot understand reality, then the next step is to redirect them. That means turn their attention to something else. So if a patient is standing by the window and they're waiting for their grandmother to come get them, you may know that the grandmother is not coming, but they're not able to understand that. So we say, you know what? Why don't we draw a picture until your grandmother comes? Or why don't you come in your room and read a book with me until your grandmother comes? So that's redirecting their attention so that you can get them to the next destination. All right, let's move on. Since you guys know the difference now between delirium and dementia, I want to move on to two other conditions, which are depression and mania. Now, remember, unlike dementia, these clients are oriented to reality. That means whether you're depressed or manic, you know the situation, you know what time of day it is, you know who you are. So when we look at depression and mania, understand that very key point.
But with depression, the signs are extreme sadness. So all the signs are considered negative. And negative signs mean that something is actually taken away from a normal personality. So a negative sign for depression would be sad. The patient is empty. They have no pleasure in anything. They are lethargic. They are crying. You see how these signs are all negative? They're not eating. So they're losing weight, right? They have suicidal thoughts. These are all negative signs. If we look at mania, there is extreme elation. They are happy. They're energetic. So all of the signs are positive, right? All of the signs are positive. So again, they're energetic. Write these down. They are impulsive. They're easily distracted. They're pleasure-seeking. Right? Sometimes they may see more than what is really there. They may think they have more money in the bank account than they do. You know, they, they'll think they're more popular than they are. They think they're better looking than they are. So um, these are signs that you see that are all positive that represent mania. Now, the similarities between the two are these three things. And you can put this down in uh, both boxes. But both conditions will have fatigue, memory loss, and mood swings, fatigue, memory loss, and mood swings. Let's look at the treatments. The conditions are also the same. They are going to be mood stabilizers, counseling, lithium, yep, lithium is a treatment, and antipsychotics if necessary. If we look at specifically depression, there is a laboratory test that NCLEX may ask you about, and it will be the serotonin level. The serotonin level will indicate if a client has low levels to result in depression, okay? There isn't one for, say, for mania, but for depression, serotonin levels can be asked about. Remember, don't give these patients choices about their counseling. They definitely should go. All right, so based off of what you know about depression and mania, let's look at some symptoms or characteristics, and I want you to decide whether it is a symptom of depression or mania. So number one, difficulty accepting compliments. Which one do you think that is? Yes, that's depression. Patients with depressions have they have low self-esteem. They will not be able to accept a compliment. What about a bizarre dress? That is going to be mania. Absolutely. Number three, euphoria. Do you think that is a sign of depression or mania? Again, yes, that's mania. Mm -hmm. Four is fear. Four is fear. Fear, yes, this will definitely be depression. Mm -hmm. And the last one is impulsiveness. Impulsiveness. What do you think? 
impulsiveness can actually be seen with both depression and mania. So that was like a trick question. All right. Our NCLEX safety point, depression. Clients who are depressed are at risk for suicide. Okay. So the nursing intervention to assess for that is you want to watch for sudden happiness. If a depressed patient is suddenly happy, that may mean that they have finally made a decision to try to commit suicide. Mania, our safety point, is we have to be careful because patients who are manic are defensive against authority. So if they view you as an authority figure, they may have a difficult time taking instructions from you. Before we close depression and mania, I want to tell you this. If a patient has both depression and mania together, it is called bipolar disorder. I don't want you guys to confuse it with my next subject, which is schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is totally different from bipolar disorder. If a patient has schizophrenia, they can't tell the difference between real and unreal. The disease is chronic and requires lifelong treatment. Now, because the schizophrenic client is not in sync with reality, they will have psychotic symptoms. And I have a list here of positive psychotic symptoms. And positive just means that they are adding to a normal reality. That's all it means. They're adding to a normal reality. So we have here delusions, hallucinations, neologisms, echolalia, and flight of idea. Let me ask you this. What is the difference between a delusion and a hallucination? A delusion is a false belief that something is true, where a hallucination is a false sensory belief. So uh, uh, a delusion is something that is not true, a false thought in the mind. Like, I am the president of the United States. That is a delusion. A hallucination involves the senses. So there is a sensory component like I feel spiders touching me or I taste blood every time I drink anything because it's, in, it's involving the sense of taste, the sense of feeling, the sense of touch. Or if patients say I hear voices, that is a hallucination because it involves the senses. So remember the difference between those two. Neologism is making up new words, making up new words. Echolalia is constantly repeating something that they've heard. And flight of idea is jumping from one topic to another topic during conversation. Now, you know, the negative signs of schizophrenia are listed there for you. The patient is mute, so they stop talking. They're catatonic, they stop moving. They're suicidal. They want to harm themselves or, they, or they're homicidal. They want to harm somebody else. So a negative sign just means that something is taken away from a normal personality or normal behavior. 
the treatment for the schizophrenic patient is if it's done medically, it's to put that patient on an antipsychotic medication. And don't worry, we will go over those medications for you. The environmental treatment is based on the nurse's behavior. Number one, we should use clear, direct statements. Two, we should sit in silence. Three, we should set limits on their behavior. Four, our nursing care here. Always keep in mind, experience to the client is real. Second, and these are just things of how we, um, how we use therapeutic communication. We need to, number two, acknowledge their feelings. Three, present reality. Four, four, set boundaries. And five, avoid changing the subject. Okay, we are going to get into the medications when we come back, but you have a lot to study so far. So make sure that you stop and you review the notes before moving on. Okay, everyone. So if you were able to take notes, let me make sure. Okay, so if you were able to take notes in your VT workbook, um, then you know, I think somebody put it here. If you have, if you have the practical nurses on 135. Okay. Um, so after this, then it goes into the psych medications that help to treat those conditions. And then you'll have your uh, homework to do. And then you'll also have the progress exam to do afterwards. So after you do those two things, the psych concepts and then the psychiatric medications, you should be good for NCLEX. You don't have to study anything else because those are the major points. All right. Um, and for those of you who don't have the virtual trainer, I hope you got a chance to see what it's like to study with me inside of that course. Um, if you want to talk more about NCLEX products or how I can help you, do me a favor and text, text the word NCLEX. Okay, NCLEX to the number 855-696-0132. And then once you text me NCLEX, um, then we can get started with how you might help, um, how you might get help or where you're at, what you need, okay? Winning Wednesday today was phenomenal. We covered a lot of subjects. We had over 500 nursing students gathered with us. So you are a part of an amazing community. Everybody grinding, working towards the same goals. That is what this entire process is about. It doesn't matter. doesn't make sense. A waste of time if at the end of the day, you don't get your nursing license. That is the goal. So NCLEX is the gatekeeper to your nursing license. And if nobody told you, I'm telling you today, you can, you will, and you must pass NCLEX. Do it. Do it. See you guys later. Bye-bye.